Well, when COVID happened, the gym was technically closed down because we weren't legally allowed to be open. We created a whole outdoor gym. We kept our memberships on. We were one of the few gyms in town that stayed open. So we had a fully operating business, but technically the inside of the business was closed and dark. And so they were trying to initiate the cash sweep. And I was like, you're not sweeping my cash. Like there's no way. And and so, you know, definitely now into the future, I'm always looking at all those little terms, like what options do they have to come in and take the money or, or start navigating the deal? Another thing that may sound small, with commercial banks, they make you send financials like every quarter. And actually in the docs, they allow it for every month. So in COVID, I kept having to prepare financials for each building per month to keep the lenders at peace. I think paying attention to the little things is a big deal. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. The slow-moving real estate market allows you plenty of time to make adjustments when you notice a downturn coming. It's hard to time the market, but a crisis will surely come. That's why you want to surround yourself with the right people, ask the right questions, and learn to position yourself to capitalize on the next downturn. Today's guest, David Lover, did just that. David is an expert in building wealth in all aspects of life. He jumped into the mortgage business after his first year of university. After making $50,000 over the summer, he decided to bet on himself. He ditched college, dove deep into the real estate world, and never looked back. He now operates a massively successful mortgage brokerage firm, a seven-figure flipping company, and is the owner of a wealthy Airbnb portfolio. In this episode, David shares his advice on how to build wealth in a volatile market, how to best position yourself for the next downturn, and his tips on how to not only survive, but thrive during difficult times. One more thing before we get to today's interview. David has a special gift for Lifestyle Investor podcast listeners. He's offering a free one-on-one 30-minute consultation to talk about retail center investing. David is willing to hop on a call to give you his best advice. To get access to this gift, visit justindonald.com forward slash 91. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with David Laver. All right, David, glad to have you on the show. Thanks for joining. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, this is going to be fun because you and I have had a chance not only to talk shop and talk about all the cool deals that we're doing, but we've been able to walk some deals together, which is really cool. And just some of the unique ideas and the expertise you have is so much different than 
many of the people in my network. And so I'm excited to kind of dig into what it is that you do. But before we go there, I'd love to learn a little bit about why you decided to get into real estate and become an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, before we get into that, that deal we walked together, I'll never forget when you stopped and talked to the guy, like for probably 30 minutes, like I've never seen somebody build so much rapport so quickly. Like it was great. Well, thanks. Well, that's been one of my keys to success is, you know, when you develop those types of relationships with people, I I feel like a lot of the people that sell property, they sell based on who they're selling it to. So some people want to maximize return. Other people want to know that their baby is going to someone that they really feel good about. And they're less concerned about squeezing every last bit of profit out of it. And they're more concerned with, hey, is this the right fit? Is this, you know, from a legacy standpoint, are they going to treat the property well? Are they going to be good to the neighbors? Are they going to be good to the, you know, current people that are in place? So yeah, I just think that's really important. And that's been a key to my success in landing a whole bunch of deals when there's competition. Because I think, when all things are even, if someone likes you, they're way more inclined to sell to you than if it's just even outside of that. 100%. And, and it was on full display. I mean, the guy was telling insider stories about his life. I mean, had we wanted to get that deal, I think we had a real shot at it. I think so. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, it was uh, really fun, you know, learning people's story. And when, when you legitimately ask and you show interest, it's amazing what comes out. Because like at first I was, you know, just asking him some questions and it was no big deal. And then he could tell I was interested. And, you know, one of my questions, you know, to him is like, I basically said, Hey, I bet you have a whole bunch of stories. Like the industry that you grew up in, I don't know much about it, but it sounds fascinating. And I bet you have a ton of cool stories, don't you? And that was it. And he's like, yeah, maybe I even said, Oh, tell me about one of them. And then, I mean, the rest is history. Then he told me like, 10 different cool stories of, you know, people he met and experiences he'd had. It was awesome. That was fun. That was a fun walk that day and a very cool property. But going back, uh, how did I get into real estate? So after my first year of university, I wouldn't say that I was like disinterested, but I was kind of disinterested. I didn't really like school that much. I liked the social aspect and hanging out with people, but what we were learning just didn't really feel that applicable to a job. And, And to be fair, it was still a lot of general ed but that summer I came home and got saw a job posting for a, a mortgage sales position. And so I applied for that job, made 50 grand that summer, and you know, the rest was history. So I've been in the mortgage business for 17 years since. And of course, being around that much real estate and doing that much financing, you start to learn how to do deals and how to get debt and how to raise equity. And so uh, that levered into a career of buying quite a bit of real estate. Now, where did you go to college? Uh, UC Riverside in California. And did you end up finishing up your time there or did you finish early and say, hey, now I'm going to just get into some real estate or I'm in your case, I'm going to get into lending first and then real estate? Yeah, there was no way. After I made that 50 grand that summer, I was like, just not going back to the top ramen life. You know, it's interesting because we live in a day and an age that's much different than our parents, which is, you know, it was almost like you need to go to college to make it. I'm generalizing here, but from the standpoint of the masses, like that's how you get ahead versus the reality is not really that. I don't know that it's ever really been that, but especially today, college is almost as obsolete as a lot of the technology that was used 
a decade or two ago. And so it's fascinating to see what can be accomplished without having, you know, a formal degree, because you can get a degree in anything if you concentrate enough energy and effort. And it might not be a certificate that says it, but you might be specializing in flipping homes. You get a master's, so to say, in flipping homes, or you get a master's, so to say, in lending in the mortgage industry. That's a concentration you're never going to get in any university. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and coming from a well-educated family, my dad went to Stanford, my mom went to uh, UC Davis. They were like, and and they worked their way out of a, you know, a low-income situation and school was their answer. So, you know, when they heard that my plan was to start working, you know, it was definitely a, I don't think they liked it right away. I think after I started experiencing some success and sustained success, I think they started to get it. But I'll, I'll tell you this. I was insecure about it probably through until probably late 20s when things really started being successful and I felt secure, like money's okay. I was always kind of like, man, did I make the right decision with that? Yeah, it's funny. There are so many decisions we make that we spend so much time and mental space second guessing the decision that we make. And by the way, I'm guilty of this too. And I think most people are to some degree. And instead of occupying our mind. And, and it's not even like, how much does it occupy? It's just the fact that there's emotional energy around it. Imagine how much faster we could accomplish the things that we desire to accomplish if we could truly just let it go and say the past, the past, and uh, it's not worth any more consideration because I can't change it at this point. But it's really hard sometimes to let go of that, you know, this whole right and wrong thing. I just, I was sharing this on a podcast earlier on someone else's podcast that it was on. And I abandoned this whole idea of right and wrong, that like when you make a decision, there's a right decision and a wrong decision. There are certainly morals and ethics that you can wrap around it. And by the way, people have different morals and ethics. So you could actually debate back and forth on whether something's ethical or not. And you can have one person on one side, another person on another side on various topics. And, you know, both in theory are right. But I'm just talking more or less like two decisions that you make. Do I stay in college or do I go to college or do I not? And do I start as an entrepreneur? And I don't know that it's right or wrong. I think it's, hey, it's path A and it's path B. And path A is going to come with some pros and cons. And path B is going to come with some pros and cons. And those pros and cons are going to be more helpful or more beneficial to a certain type of person. But the more information you collect, the more you have to make better decisions in the future. And in my world, I'm just trying to not have those regrets, move forward and say, hey, this isn't right or wrong. It's just a decision I made. Here's the downside of it. Here's the upside of it. And let me move forward more educated. Yeah. And and what's weird is for a person that didn't enjoy education in the college framework, now as an entrepreneur, I'm obsessed with education. I mean, I, I pay six figures a year in different education. I surround myself around people doing great things. And I especially learn the most from someone doing it. You go meet with, if you want to get into an asset class or do this or that, if someone's already doing it in a lunch or an afternoon, hanging out with somebody, I can learn so much and shortcut all the easy mistakes that you fall into trying to learn yourself. And so it's weird. I love education. It's just that it's got to be education that affect something that I'm doing every day. If it's, if it's a way to build a business or make some money or live better, I'm I'm all about it, you know? Yeah. And you know, it's, it's fun. You and I have had some good times here. We, We share a bunch of mutual friends. So, uh, we did the, the food and wine festival here in Austin together via our friend, Michael Chu. We have looked at some real estate together via our friend, Brad Weimert. 
Uh, and we've got a bunch of other mutual friends. And so I've seen you both on the fun, hang outside, non-work. I've seen you on the analytical side of like evaluating a deal. And you're just a fun guy to be around. And you are the amount of detail orientation you have is incredible. I mean, when we were just running some numbers, I was really impressed with how quickly you could compute some of this stuff in your head. And I think that that's such a great hack because if you can do that, you can say yes or no a lot faster. More importantly, you can just say no faster. You know what your criteria is, you know how you weed stuff out, not spend a whole lot of time. I'm curious to hear your process there. Like you have a very analytical brain, so you can just make a few moves. You're like, nope, wasting no more time here. Let's move on to the next one. Yeah. Well, I think I've always had an aptitude for math that that it's fair. I'm also in lending. So I've stare at these numbers all day. And I think part of it is like at one point, you know, four plus four equals eight was hard, but once you know what it is, it's just fast. So I think early on, I, I took the time to underwrite deals. I did all the spreadsheets myself. I spent a lot of time with the numbers. And so it's just four plus four equals eight. I mean, at this point, with, for a lot of different deal types, I can just walk in and quickly compute the numbers. Well, I love it. I mean, you can take big numbers. I mean, we, we looked at a deal that I think was a $12 million deal and the way that you were able to run the operating agreement in your head to what you thought it was worth, the square footage based on that market, even based on comps that weren't even built yet, but were projected to be built and completed at a certain time and maybe what other groups underwrote them for. That was very impressive to me. And I remember thinking, gosh, I got to get you on the show and just have people hear and learn how your brain works because it's powerful and and there's so much to learn. I, I appreciate that. That's quite the compliment. <laughs> so how did you transition then from, you know, and, and by the way, I know you're still active in, in the lending industry and that's, you know, kind of a foundation for you, but how did you transition or how long were you there before you transitioned into some of your real estate? Yeah. So I've been in lending 17 years. It was about eight or nine years in uh, that I started getting into the investing side of things. And our lending business, most of our business came from real estate agents. So we would meet lots of real estate agents, network with them to help their clients get loans so they could get houses. And so naturally one realtor called me someday and said, Hey, I got this kind of contractor special deal. Uh, Do you have a contractor pre-approved who might want it? And we actually brought a contractor in who I had pre-approved and he couldn't perform. So as he fell out with the escrow, the realtor called me. and was like, this is a pretty good deal. And I was like, yeah, it really is. So him and I ended up buying it together. We bought it for a million bucks. We put 20 grand into just like painting it and dressing it up. We sold it for 1.3 million, like two months later. And so, you know, and him and I were a good team. He was an older guy. I was kind of had more of the energy in the operations and he had, you know, more finances. So it was a good partnership. And so uh, we created a partnership and that that's kind of where the investing began. Although they're not all like that first one, I think <laughs> that might've been a, a special one. Oh yeah. You got to be careful because today it's hard to find deals that are undervalued. I mean, most stuff, there's so much competition. It just keeps getting bid up, bid up, bid up. I mean, if you have 50 people bidding on you know, a home, an apartment complex, how on earth can that be a good deal, right? Like that that kind of uh, rules out the fact that you're getting a good deal. The competition places a premium on, you know, getting it at whatever cost you can get it at. So are we going, you know, 
a uh, hundred thousand over asking? Are we going a million over asking? I mean, this is what's happening in a lot of markets, especially the hot markets, especially here in Austin, where we live. So what are your thoughts on making sure like that first deal is incredible. I love that you could do that that fast. That's generally not the case. What What are your thoughts on the market and how kind of crazy it's been? And at least in we could talk public equities, but I mean, specifically, this, you know, real estate in general. And I could probably talk the rest of the pot on this concept, but to say it concisely, I think that finding good deals is about value creation. For example, early on in the flip business, our value creation was that we knew hundreds of realtors through the loan business. And we called on literally hundreds and hundreds of realtors and looked at, we're averaging 70 off-market referrals a month and buying maybe one or two. And so we created value by a really aggressive and over-the-top sales process. Today, most of what we're buying is commercial assets and our value is created in the construction. We're buying a retail center that's lost in anchor. We're bringing in a new tenant. We recap it and create the new value. And so we're really creating the value with the work and the construction and the relationship with the business that will go in. But yeah, no, I mean, this idea of like, you're going to call a realtor and they're going to find you a good deal on the MLS is is just, <laughs> it's not the deal today. It's not. You want to buy them off market. I talk about this a lot in my book with invisible deals where you buy something that no one else knows about. There's little to no competition. Now, you've had a tremendous amount of success in your retail centers. You just mentioned it a little bit. Walk us through what you've done there, because this is a pretty cool model, and this is unique. I feel like most people aren't in this space, but when you understand it and when you find your niche, there's a lot of magic that can happen. So fill us in. Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, to go through the path, I mean, I think most people are searching for cash flow. The idea is you have enough cash flow to live the life that you want to live. I think another buzzword in real estate is the Burr method, which is you come in, you buy a place, you fix it up, you refinance your money out because you've created value. And then now you keep it with some cash flow. That's all easy to say, but it's also hard to do. So we, we've done apartments, we've done flips. Flips isn't really passive, right? You're, you're constantly working, finding deals, turning them over. Apartments, it can be passive, but you're a lot of managing the manager. The retail centers, the reason we've landed on that is because you sign one tenant for a 10-year deal and you get your checks every month. So if you're talking about real passive cash flow, it seems to be um, a good model. The, the long and short of it is basically we'll find a retail center that's lost a big anchor. You know, Amazon's killing everybody, Toys R Us and all these other businesses, Kmart's. And there's not really big tenants to come in on a retail platform and fill it. And so what we decided to do was find a, what we thought was Amazon proof, meaning it's an in-person business and recession proof business, which we think crunch fitness is that. So we've got a deal with crunch fitness. I've got some operators that actually run the business and we own the rights to several cities for crunch and we'll buy the building. We'll put the tenant in, we'll build it out for them, hand them the keys to a brand new store. We pre-agree on what the lease will be so we know that it makes our deal work. And they're off to run the store and we own the building and get our rents every month. It's, it's a pretty good partnership. So that's your anchor. And then generally, how many additional spaces are there that you can then uh, lease out to different businesses? Yes. So this was a mistake I made on the first deal. I bought a single tenant building. It was a 30,000 foot building and I just put the gym in. And then when I went to go, so we had created the value, right? Uh, so the new lease made the building worth. We bought the building for 3 million. We put 2 million in. 
the new lease made it worth eight and a half million based on the bank appraisal. So we were thinking any bank's going to lend us $5 million on 8 million so we can refi out and go on to the next deal. And a lot of banks did not want to take a gym anchored retail center with gym only. So that was definitely a lesson to be learned. It's like, you got to know your financing ahead of time. But uh, the second building we did was half gym, half other tenants. And it was a mix of several other tenants. And the banks liked that a lot more because you're, you're, the risk is kind of spread out. So our, our kind of ideal spot is 25,000 feet vacant. And then all the inlines filled and we just come in and fill the anchor. Oh, that's nice. You, you're buying it knowing that one big anchor tenant left right? And you have all the other tenants already there, already paying rent, already locked into some sort of longer term lease. And then you're plugging into the only vacant spot, which is a big vacant spot, a crunch fitness that you have good understanding and knowledge of to know that they're not going to default. That's exactly correct. And, And that is the big thing. I mean, we looked at restaurant concepts and massage therapy and all these other things, which are great businesses or it can be anyway. But when you're filling up a thousand feet or 1500 feet, you're not really like creating a large value change. Whereas a gym that's taking 20 to 30,000 feet, I mean, you could swing the equity position by a few million dollars with that one tenant. And I'm guessing you then have some sort of relationship with the crunch fitness. So you own the building, you're the owner of the actual real estate. And then you've got some sort of an agreement, some sort of a partnership with the Crunch Fitness, right? It's it's not just a tenant type situation, tenant landlord, right? You have a piece of the Crunch Fitness or do you not? Do you not care about that and you really just want to collect the rent check and that's it? That's a really good question. So the evolution of this is will be that we partner with multiple different business types And when we get a tenant or we get a building, maybe there's a big anchor missing, but also one or two inlines. And maybe we go, oh, we have our restaurant concept we can throw in. We have our this we can throw in and oh, a crunch goes in. So in theory, we're working towards multiple business partnerships that when we find real estate, we can just quickly recap it. I think each negotiation will be different. So the relationship with crunch in particular, I keep 40% of the crunch that I build out. And if you think about it from their perspective, Normally, they would go to a landlord, they'd get a small TI budget, and they'd have to raise a mil and a half to get the gym open. That's pretty normal. So they're usually giving away 40% anyway to get a gym open. They've got to raise some money and bring in some partners. So the things they don't like doing, which is raising money and managing construction, I do. So I'm literally just like, we pick the real estate, I raise all the money, handle everything, hand them the keys to an open store. And they get to just operate the business the way that they want to operate the business. And so that one works out well. But I think in other situations, like, I don't know, what if it was a Walgreens was willing to partner and they said, we won't give you the business, but we'll give you our valuable lease. I'd probably do that deal. But uh, in theory, it's I, I like the idea of having some ownership in the business as well. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I like how you structured that. You know, on the flip side, there are probably businesses that you don't want to own. Like you wouldn't want to give up the dollars maybe in a speculative restaurant. You know, if it's not a chain and there's not the financial strength behind them, you might be throwing money out the door to be like, hey, give me, you know, a percentage of your business and I'll do the build out. But, you know, I think you could be really strategic in who you're bringing in so that it's um, businesses that you know well, businesses that you can help scale where you can have influence, a positive influence to create that win-win. So I, I love the partnership with, with Crunch. And then I love the way of going after the building. So how many times over have you done this? I'm guessing some you've 
you know, bought and sold, and and most you probably have bought and held. Uh, what does that look like today? Yeah, so my partners in the Crunch deal, they had eight existing gyms in San Diego. Uh, so those were all leased. Um, we started this venture in 2018, 2019. So this is actually fun. So the first one came online in October of 2019. We finished refinancing it in February of 2020, like, you know, a month before COVID. And that one was great. So that one's fully leased out. We have locked in 10-year loan. Cash flow is 20 grand a month. The gym's making 30 to 40 grand a month. We're making money on all sides of it. The next two we bought was in like January, February of 2020, literally right before COVID. So those two gyms, we opened right in the middle of COVID and it took the first, the one in Texas, because of the politics, they just kept open. So it's a little easier to navigate the deal. That one we still own today. It's fully refinanced and cash flowing. And then the third one in California, we just got to profitability. We actually just finished our year end reporting. And so uh, we're working on refinancing or possibly selling that building. Uh, We may sell that building. Well, what's great is you not only have you know, the, you own the building, you have the layup of the partnership, but then you have this expertise already in lending. So you know what the terms are going to look like and how to structure unique terms. And I'm guessing that you try to do as much as you can with non-recourse lending. Uh, Is that something that you go after or is that less important to you at this point? Uh, No, I mean, I'm in a financial position where recourse is a big consideration. You know, I don't have to keep buying stuff, right? So why, why would I take on a bunch of personal liability, especially on something like this where you have pretty large debt stacks, you know, it's between, you know, five, six million a building. So it's, there's a lot of recourse if something happens to the gym and COVID certainly remind us that things could happen to the gym. So I think that's a two-part answer. The first answer is in, in the retail space, you are not just a real estate investor. You're also a business investor. You do have to think about the, the business, how it's run, who's running it. Do you trust what's happening? So that that's a big piece. And then the second piece is, I think the tail wags the dog. Like, I think in terms of debt, I think you have to like figure out what debt options are available in what asset class and decide what vehicles I want to work around. And then once you know what the debt options are back into how you're structuring the deal. So yeah, definitely the the lending background has helped a lot with that. But I think some people miss this. Like they get into deals and don't really think through the debt on the backside. And I actually think it should be the other way around. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a special offer that I created for the lifestyle investor community. When I look back at my investing journey, there's one specific investment in particular that was the spark to increasing my net worth and allowing me to leave my job to become a lifestyle investor. I'm talking about mobile home parks. Yes, mobile home parks. If you just cringed a little, that's exactly why these provide such a great opportunity because of the negative stigma and stereotype people might have. In reality, this is an incredible investment that you can get into with little or no money down. You can also quickly get a return on your capital. You can immediately cash flow on day one. You can hold it forever as a cash cow. You get accelerated depreciation to reduce or eliminate the taxes that you would owe. And often the seller will finance the deal so you don't need a bank. You can also buy them at the highest cap rate of all real estate, meaning it's the cheapest real estate to buy based on the income that it generates. And it's the lowest default rate of all real estate, meaning it's the safest asset class to own in real estate. 
I use this asset class to start my journey in real estate investing and grow my net worth to over eight figures all before I turned 40. And out of all the questions that people ask me, how do I get into mobile home parks is still the number one question that I get, which is why I put together this mobile home park masterclass. This is a paid class that I'm offering for a limited time only. For all the details, head over to justindonald.com forward slash MHP and watch the video, which outlines all the details about the class and exactly what you get when you sign up. You'll also hear the incredible success stories from students who have gone through my content and are now making hundreds of thousands of dollars in passive income. If you want to take the same first step that I did that helped me take both my wife and I from working full-time jobs to becoming lifestyle investors, join me in my mobile home park masterclass and let's get started on your journey to becoming a lifestyle investor. Visit justindonald.com forward slash MHP for all the details. That's a good point. So what are some of the terms that you're looking for that you know, make it attractive for you to be in the space? Because I've got to imagine you're getting terms that other people aren't getting just because you know to ask for them or just because you know that everything's negotiable. You know, when I first got into real estate, I just thought that um, you negotiate the real estate deal, but you couldn't really negotiate the lending deal, right? I I just thought you'd take what you can get. And later I learned, oh no, there's a total negotiation on the lending side. And the better relationships you have with more groups, the more competition there is for your loan. And so everything's a negotiation there as well. And so it's funny, you know, I'll get docs today from banks that tons of people that I know just get them and they sign them. But I'll send them to my attorney and I'll say, what do we need to push on? And I'll get a red line document back. We send it to the bank. Hey, bank, we need you to uh, you know, adopt these red lines or adhere to these, you know, these important points to uh, for us uh, in order to get this loan done. And so it's it's not just take what you can get. It's very much a negotiation. And we feel we're very much in the driver's seat. So I'm curious, like, what are the terms that are important to you? And do you do a lot of negotiating with the banks? That's so funny that you talked about redlining documents. So being in residential lending, you can negotiate, but it's usually on price. Most banks start with kind of a higher margin. If you come in with a competing quote, they'll generally come down in rate or come down in fees. So, uh, you know, I certainly have been on both sides of that negotiation quite a bit. And I, I think probably people don't think enough about getting a second quote and just driving down that price because it, it's it's an option. But the docs themselves, like Fannie Mae's docs or Fannie Mae's docs. So like what you said earlier, that, that really is how it is in that space. So it's more of a price thing. Uh, the first time, so the first gym, when I refinanced it out, I actually refinanced it with another commercial building that I have. And we got a, a $10.6 million loan. And I think the two buildings were worth like 16 mil or something like that. And I remember this was my first CMBS loan I had gotten. And the bank sent me the docs and said, oh, have your attorney send the red lines. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> like the red lines, like changes? Like I propose the changes. I think getting a $10 million loan and actually negotiating like what the loan doc said was the, like when I felt like a grown up in business. Yeah. And that, I think that's where it gets fun where it's like, Hey, I'm negotiating or you're negotiating with the bankers or with the specialty lenders, right? It's really an interesting space where 
I mean, simple things like uh, price, fees, interest rate, terms, amortization, personal guarantee, all of these are negotiable. People don't realize that. You can negotiate your personal guarantee, which maybe in year one is 100%. You can negotiate it down to 75 in year two and 50% in year three and fall off completely in year four. You know, you can negotiate right out of the gate sometimes to have no personal guarantee, right? So everything is a negotiation. Are there specific terms that um, you look for in the retail centers when you get your lending on that? Yeah, I learned a lot of lessons in COVID. Not to speak negatively about the CMBS product, because I think it's super valuable in, in a lot of different ways. There's a blackout clause and a cash sweep clause and their boilerplate loan docs, which basically says that if, if the business, if X percentage of the businesses in the, the building go out, the bank has the right to just cash sweep your bank accounts. I mean, I was like, this, why would we ever, you know? have the business go black. I, I, I don't care if that clause is in there. So I didn't think to negotiate about it. Well, when COVID happened, the gym was technically closed down because we weren't legally allowed to be open. And we actually opened, we created a whole outdoor gym. We kept our memberships on. We were one of the few gyms in town that stayed open. So we had a fully operating business, but technically the inside of the business was closed and dark. And so they were trying to initiate the cash sweep. And I was like, you're not sweeping my cash. Like there, there's no way. And, and so, you know, definitely now into the future, I'm always looking at all those little terms, like what options do they have to come in and take the money or, to, or start navigating the deal? Another thing that may sound small with commercial banks, they make you send financials like every quarter and actually in the docs, they allow it for every month. So in COVID, I kept having to prepare financials for each building per month to keep the lenders at peace. I, you know, I think quarterly is enough or maybe twice a year, like I'm not trying to be doing a bunch of extra work to make the bank happy. So I think paying attention to the little things is is, is a big deal. Yeah. And that can be negotiated to annual financials, right? I, I don't want to provide more than anything uh, on an annual basis if I don't have to. So all you know, nine times out of 10, that, that's all that I like to to give up. And I just give them, you know, all the info that comes at tax return time. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. You're talking about CMBS. And so basically earlier you talked about agency debt, which is like Fannie Freddie. And so there's probably less negotiating on terms of the contract, uh, but more negotiating on, you know, terms of the deal, the interest, the, you know, the price, maybe even some of the uh, debt to income ratios, that type of stuff. So generally with, with agency debt, you know, that this is non-recourse debt. And then you get in a CMBS, which is kind of like your Wall Street debt, right? Where uh, it's packaged and sold off into pieces on the secondary market. And so you can lock in, you know, non-recourse generally there. But the things with those two type of lending vehicles is that if you sell early, if you sell within the first 10 years or or whatever the time frame is, then there are penalties with yield maintenance or defeasance. And so you've got to be careful that if you have a product that you think you might sell, you've got on one hand, you want this non-recourse debt. On the other hand, is it worth the fees that it's going to cost you if you sell it in year three, if you're going to be penalized up to year 10, right? And so all these things are important. And that's why some people will say, hey, I'll just take a, a local lender. And I've, I've been a big fan of local lenders um, because I feel like I can do the most negotiating there with the local lenders. I, I'm curious you know, how, how you view the different 
you know, types of lending that exist? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. Um, I think of CMBS as like the, they'll give you some pretty aggressive and interesting terms, sometimes higher loan to values, sometimes interest only periods, sometimes 30 year amortization instead of say 25 or 20, which a lot of the local banks want shorter amortization. But those terms, those those bonuses come with the price. With that 10-year defeasance, I think our early payoff on our loan is like 2.3 million if we were to pay the thing off. I mean, it's just a staggering number. And uh, so, you know, it's and everyone goes into it, you know, bright eyed thinking that, you know, they're gonna keep their deal 10 years, but 10 years is a long time and recessions change things. I mean, we, I think we remember 2008, like if you had a building then, would you have thought about selling it? Maybe. And so life changes, things happen, divorce. So 10 years is a very long commitment. A lot of times when you say CMBS to somebody who's had to pay theirs off early, they'll, <laughs> they'll give you a look because people who know, know. But in terms of, yeah, the local banks, we used local bank on the second one. And it was exactly what you said. They were very negotiable with uh, kind of contract terms. And they, they actually like knew the location of the building and like drove out there and they're like, oh, I like that one, you know. But we only got a three-year fixed instead of a 10-year fixed. Uh, we did get a little interest-only period. So I think there's value for both. If there's not like complete certainty around keeping it, I don't think CMBS is the right answer. And I think uh, uh, local banks will do little different things that CMBS won't. Yeah. And here's the thing about CMBS or you know the longer-term debt, and, and you're going to have this same experience with agency, with Fannie, with Freddie. And that is this, like, you may think you're going to hold it for 10 years, but what if someone offers you like, you know, twice what you paid for it in a short period of time, it's hard to not want to sell no matter how good it is. And so I just think having the options available to sell if you want to sell or not, if you don't, because you never know what the market's going to command. You know, when I got into mobile home park investing early on, People laughed at me. They thought it was, you know, atrocious. And why would I do that? And now people are making the most ridiculous offers. We get just, I mean, we get offers that on a monthly basis, uh, at a minimum, where I'm like, man, that's such a crazy offer. Maybe I should sell. But it keeps getting crazier. Like this last offer that we got, it's, you know, you're almost at this point of like, impossible to say no. You just can't say no because of how much uh, people are willing to pay to get into the space today. So it's a fascinating thing. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about your transition from residential to commercial, because when you first got into real estate, um, or at some point in the early stages, maybe it wasn't your first transaction, but Pretty early on, you were kind of doing the Airbnb portfolio, right? Um, that that was a big play for you. And by the way, for those of you that are doing it, Airbnb can be great if you're in the right markets, but there's work involved. You can hire out a team to do it and pay them, you know, a percentage of of uh, you know the revenue or figure out some sort of profit uh, share. But why did you? Well, first of all. Why did you get into Airbnbs? And then secondly, why did you pivot from Airbnbs to commercial? Yeah, both great questions. So just the, the progression was, I'll do some flips for passive income. And it, it became a business. I had to like hire a team and manage it and create all the business infrastructure that I have in my first company, like weekly accounting meetings, weekly you know investor updates, like just all these things. And so you know, it was making good money, but it was a business. 
Uh, so then I was taking the profits from that and I started buying apartment houses and, you know, it's just thin margins, even six, seven years ago, when, when the cap rates were higher than they are today, it was still thin margins. You go invest a million bucks. And if you get a good deal, maybe you're making 60 K a year. Something it's not like some crazy return. It's, it's a long game, right? So, you know, Airbnb, of course, is just this idea that you can double or, you know, regular rents. And so it, it seemed like it would be a better cash flow model. The truth is Airbnb is much like flipping. You, you're you not just putting a renter in and, and you have income. I mean, you're, you're managing a manager, there's problems, there's things, there's phone calls that come. And so, you know, while I was building this Airbnb portfolio, there was a flip deal that came in that was a retail center that had a credit union. And I bought that building and realized how easy it was. And, you know, that kind of helped facilitate the transition. But I'll say this in regards to Airbnb. So we bought, we were buying in Nashville. At one point we had 14 homes there and we got the permits to do the short-term rents prior to when they canceled the ability to do that. And if you had them from before, you're actually grandfathered in to continue using them. I had an attorney review my portfolio to, you know, just give me ideas about asset protection. And those were all bought in my personal name because I used Fannie Mae loans. And he's like, you know, you've got bachelor and bachelorette parties in your houses every weekend. If someone falls and breaks their neck, you don't really want them suing you personally. We should put these in an LLC. So I, I created a Nash B&B, which I thought was really clever and uh, put them all into the LLC. And in changing the title, it actually constituted a sale and I killed all my permits. So awesome. <laughs> <That's rough. laughs> Yeah. And, and those deals were sweet. We were buying them for $350, getting about five, six grand a month in rent. I mean, it, it was really nice numbers. But to be frank, I, I was doing it because we were on a path and I follow through with things, but it was becoming a headache in terms of management. It was like now I had the third or fourth business or whatever it was at the time. It was not like I was just investing in Nashville and getting free cash flow. Um, and so I think. One, the permits pushed it, but two, uh, searching for yield with less management is kind of what led us towards retail. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that it makes also a ton of sense when you have an anchor tenant that's a credit union. You buy a building and you've got a credit union there. The odds are pretty good. They're not going out of business uh, because they're going to be a little bit more financially strong than most banks even uh, as a general rule. Uh, which is interesting. So you got into commercial. And so let's talk about a triple net lease, right? This is, you know, a lot of people, this is, you know, when you see NNN on something, you know, your triple net lease, this is a big investment arena that a lot of people are transitioning to. And the progression that you'll see is you'll have people that start in single family homes, and then they'll move to apartment complexes. Maybe they'll get into self-storage at some point. Maybe they graduate from, you know, maybe they go right to, you know, straight to self-storage, or maybe they go from apartments to self-storage because it's like, oh, lots of work to way less work. And then eventually it's like, hey, let's go to triple net leases because this seems like it's the least amount of work. And you'll see this a lot also in, you know, in the industrial space as well, uh, as well as, you know, commercial retail. Walk me through some of that progression as you see it and kind of, you know, how you would describe a triple net lease operation. Yeah, I'll, I'll describe the triple nets in just a second, but I think there's some just general thinking around this. I personally don't think there's a magic pill in terms of investment. I think every investment you have to grade time invested, risk capital, and return. And as as some go up, some go down. 
you know, a government bond is probably pretty close to zero risk. Although I don't know these days, but let's just say that that's true. Going investing in an Airbnb in a like highly recreational area, while it would be higher cash flow than a bond, there's some risk there. If recession happens and people stop traveling for a bit because it's tight, like that building probably isn't going to cash flow. But when it's good, it's good. So, you know, I think across the, the board, you got to gauge time versus risk versus return and, and make decisions. And I, I don't think there's a right answer. But in terms of triple net, so basically, this is where you put a tenant in and the tenant's responsible for paying all expenses of the building, including property taxes, including insurance, including maintenance, just everything related to the building. So from the perspective of like work, apartments are tough because when you've got a hundred doors, let's just say, and your, your expenses can very easily start creeping up on you without you notice, and it will erode your returns. And so there's work. You've got to manage the manager, watch the numbers, keep an eye on things, run it well. Uh, triple net, I mean, you sign it and they're paying everything and you don't have to think about it. So it's you know certainly a very good return from the perspective of least time invested. Uh, but the risk, of course, is if the business dies, a lot of retail's dying. So you know you, you have the risk of like, how do you retenant if something like that happens? So what do you see as kind of the future of real estate, at least in the short term? Like, you know, a lot of people are talking about the next recession that's happening. And you've got other people that are really bullish on real estate and paying prices well above asking, uh, especially in some of your hotter markets across the United States and the world. You know, what do you see happening? Do you see this as being, you know, still really safe to invest in real estate? Do you think that we're going to hit some turbulence here? I mean, a lot of people thought we would have already hit turbulence and didn't think that we'd print this much money. So I'm curious to get your thoughts. Uh, yeah, no, that again, we could have, we could have talked the whole pod on just that one question. And I'd, I'd actually love to hear you weigh in also, but the, uh, it's really tough. I, I listen to these people who are well-educated in macroeconomics and I, I listen to macro voices. I listen to all these other podcasts. I try and hear Ray Dalio as much as I can, because he seems like he's pretty sharp and you're right. It's a lot of, there's two ways to look at it, but I think it's always like that. I mean, to be frank, um, I think you've got to kind of think about the, keep the end in mind or the worst case scenario in mind of if recession happens, what does it look like? I.e. like the business gets in trouble. Like, Look at COVID. Our businesses got closed for a year. So how did we solve that? We made sure to keep several hundred thousands of reserves in each business so we could go some time without payments, you know, this kind of thing. Um, so I think there's ways to create business models that account for recession. But as a what do I think is going to happen? The, I think the major things that I look at are in, since the 2008 recession, uh, the new homes built is way below the family creation like incredibly below. There's these charts floating around that kind of point out that basically it's like half of what it should have been. So you have the supply issue. And then the second piece is they've printed 10 trillion. I mean, it's like, it's as a percentage of total money supply, there's, there hasn't been anything like it. So I, you know, I, I just can't see any scenario where the real estate asset class gets walloped unless they start lending poorly again, which being a lender, we're still qualifying docs. Everyone's putting down payments down like, it's not the same as it was in 08. Yeah, that's that's good to hear. You know, I think there's going to be some turbulence, uh, especially in some real estate more so than others. I think if you're in a hot market, it can likely weather uh, turbulence. And I mean, I think it's still better long-term to be in 
real estate than in cash because you're going to lose money every day you're in cash and you're going to at least keep up with inflation if you're in an asset, you know, uh, such as real estate. So, you know, it's interesting. You've got a lot of smart people on both sides. I just watched kind of like a, a message, a speech by Ray Dalio kind of highlighting his new book, but addressing some of the market specific stuff and paying attention to all the historical data he has and the way that he's laying that, you know, over. And it was really a phenomenal uh, walkthrough of what history looks like and maybe what we're embarking on upon uh, as a nation that, that maybe it's not going to be as, I guess, amazing as it's been, as fruitful as it's been. Um, but even if things kind of implode, I think it's a, a long period of time probably before it's really felt. So we'll see. Uh, you know, each market I think is going to play a different role, and each asset class I think is going to play a different role. Um, but you know, play it, it pays to have plans in place for all scenarios that could happen. You know, to stress test what you're investing in. That in a really bad downturn, uh, really bad economic downturn, or you know, another COVID, that your business can survive. And I like that you had, you know, excess capital that you saved for a rainy day. I think that's really smart, and I hope people do more of that. And not just on the business side, on the personal side. If you lose your primary source of income, do you have enough money saved away that you can cover six to twelve months? of what it costs you to live. So uh, awesome, awesome info. I really appreciate you joining us on the show here. And David, where can my audience learn a little bit more about you? Yeah, I'd say the easiest place to find me is on Instagram. It's at Mr. Lover. That's my last name. And certainly if anyone wanted to chat more or learn more about retail, happy to jump on a 30-minute call with anybody who's interested. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for for joining us. This has been just a really fun and enlightening session. And I want to end the call as I end the call uh, every single time that uh, we get together each week. And that's this. What's the one step that you're taking today to move towards financial freedom, to move in a life that is by design, not by default, a life on your terms, and one that you're really inspired to live. Thanks, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.